Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Or you can just hear the words that you should know well and the prophecy and promise that you'll never forget. As the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about a day coming of great compromise among Christians, he said, after describing his own persecutions and afflictions, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I've already explained the text. I'm reading it again because I don't want you to forget it. Yea, and all, not just me, Timothy, and not just you and me, but all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you are not suffering persecution for the cause of Christ, then you're not living a godly life or you're not living that godly life in Christ. If you're living a godly life in Christ, you will suffer persecution. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10 for the subject matter of our title, and that is the sword of Christ. I know that we've been to these verses already, but I want to go there again because I want you to remember this rule. Matthew 10, 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. It goes on to say this wonderful promise, He that findeth his life shall lose it. If you try to save your life by keeping your family in friendly relationships with those who don't love Christ, you're going to lose your life. You're never going to be happy. You're going to be miserable. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That's how you find the greatest happiness and the most fulfillment in life is to put Christ first above all other relationships. Not only is that the basis for true relationships with family, but the Lord can and will replace your family with others and He'll replace it a hundredfold. Some of you brothers have given up brothers. Do you have better brothers in this church? Isn't the Lord good and does He keep His promises? Amen. Let's quickly move into what the Lord has for us. Two points. The Bible promises it to happen. So we are forearmed by being forewarned. Because we're told in advance, it helps us prepare for the day that it's coming because it will come. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I want to deal today with the sword of the Lord Jesus Christ because He brings a sword into our relationships with family and friends if we truly choose to follow Him according to the doctrine that's taught in the Bible. The next point, surprise. Christians are our worst enemies. Christians, other worshipers of God over the millennia, are the worst enemies of the people of God. It's hard to imagine or believe, but the greatest enemies and persecutors are Christians. So rather than worrying about Islam, which we don't, 
Think instead about family and friends that are here today. Isn't that a cheery thought? It hasn't disappointed us before to think that way, has it? Because it's been fulfilled before our eyes. I say, look in the beginning, it's two brothers worshiping the same Lord, and one killed the other. I say, look in the end of the Bible, and John saw a church drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Did David fear and stress over the Philistines when he wrote his imprecatory psalms, or are those about friends, family, and brethren in the church of the Old Testament? When you read those psalms, and they're in the preparatory email I sent you last night, some of them, and there's some of them at the top end of this sermon outline, Was David's fear about the Philistines or was David's fear about brethren in the church of the Old Testament that he was part of? It's friends that turned on him. As Paul mentioned to us in reading Psalm 55, who took better care of Jeremiah, the Chaldean Nebuchadnezzar or Jehovah's Jews? Nebuchadnezzar took far better care of him. Who persecuted Jesus and Paul the most? The pagan Egyptians or Jehovah's Jews? Jehovah's Jews. The apostolic prophecy that I've just read to you from 2 Timothy 3 is about Christians. They're going to hate you as read to you from Isaiah 66, 5 by David Taylor this morning. Because in that passage it said, they're going to say, let the Lord be glorified while they're putting you to death. Because they're think, they think that they're going to be doing God a service. The same it is said in John 16. You may turn there with me, John chapter 16, or you can listen. Verse 2, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. Did the apostle Paul think within himself to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth? Was he doing it out of what he perceived to be faith and zeal toward God? Didn't he tell when he was on trial, that I have served God with a pure conscience from my fathers? He had, because as far as his knowledge carried him, he thought he was protecting God's religion by getting rid of these impostors, liars, and blasphemers that were following Jesus the Nazarene. And then he became a leader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Amen. Yes. So we want to beware of enemies in the church. Paul describes them as false brethren brought in unawares. Galatians chapter 2, Paul warned the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20 that men would arise among them to lead away disciples after themselves. Our enemies will come from our midst. It is the truth of God's word. Let it be someone else but not you. And if everyone would hear that warning, it will be no one in this assembly if they'll hear it and heed it. First John 2.19 tells us they went out from us because they did not continue with us, because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. And so we want to remember this warning, this Sunday, the sword of Christ will arise in our families and it will arise in our church. And so you've got to be prepared that neither are going to discourage you or destroy you. You might be cast down with our brother Paul, but you will not be destroyed. You might be perplexed, but you're not going to be in despair. You might be troubled on every side, but you will not be distressed. 
Familiar friends, that is the closer they get, make great enemies for God's sword because they hurt the most. Fourth time I've mentioned it today. In Psalm 35, did you see that David described their conspiracies and devising evil against him as spoiling his soul? It hurt him. Did you hear from Psalm 55 that if it had been my enemy, I could have borne it? If it was someone that hated me, I could have avoided that person. But it was someone that I ate with. It was someone that I took companionship with. It was someone that I went into the house of the Lord with. And so familiar friends make great enemies for this sword. So you better be ready for someone close to you that you have loved and that they have said love you. Turn to be your enemy. It's these defections and enemies that hurt the most. But it also proves your love of Christ the most. Because you're willing to give up the one that hurts the most. Who were the enemies of Moses in Numbers 12? His brother and sister, thank you, young man. Miriam and Aaron. Now that's close to home, isn't it? They had been through a lot together, but it wasn't enough. And you remember all that I preached from Numbers 12. Grasp it. David encountered the type. In Psalm 55 that we heard read to us this morning, verses 12 through 23, when he described a companion, most like to believe that he's talking about Ahithophel, his guide and his counselor. Ahithophel was his bosom buddy. They worshipped God together. He was a very wise man in the reign of David. Ahithophel, when he spoke, it was like the oracles of God. And that man turned to be David's enemy. And when David had to flee from Jerusalem, you can find David's prayer he, in, in great consternation of his soul, Lord, defeat thou for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Because he knew that Ahithophel's counsel was like inquiring of the Lord. And Ahithophel's counsel was perfect. Let me go gather 12,000 men and I myself will go take care of David while he is disorganized and in confusion, fleeing from the city of Jerusalem. And Hushai, David's next best counselor, raised his hand and said, I got a better idea, Absalom. Will you hear my idea? I think we need time. And Ahithophel had never had anyone say, I've got another idea. So he went home and hung himself. Praise God. Bless the Lord. Psalm 35 and Psalm 55 come true. God sent him home to hang himself. Let him be taken in his own net. He was designing David's death, but it was his death that took place that day. It's a wonderful fulfillment of those imprecatory... You say you've used that word four times today, maybe five... Go home and look it up. It means that you pray vengeance from God against enemies. Who hated Micaiah and put him in prison? Was it the pagan Syrians? Or was it Ahab the Israelite? My point being, familiar friends make great enemies. If you were King Ahab and you knew there was one prophet that represented Jehovah, what would you do to him? Would you put him in prison and give him the bread of affliction and the water of affliction? Or would you put him at your right hand and say, unless I have to speak, please speak for me? Oh, 
Isn't that the wiser thing to do? But it doesn't happen that way, does it? It doesn't happen that way. And Ahab died that day. Jesus' brothers did not believe on him. Why didn't they believe on him? Ask Eliab. Why would I answer my question with that question or that statement? Ask Eliab. Who's Eliab? David's older brother. When David showed up on the battlefield and saw that uncircumcised pagan Goliath come out and blaspheme the armies of Israel, he said, What's, why is anyone doing anything? Is there not a cause? And they said, the king had said, anybody who will go and face him, he'll do this for him. He'll be tax exempt for the rest of his life. He'll get his daughter, blah, whatever. The whole list of things. And David said, is there not a cause? Aren't you guys going to do it? His brother came along and said, you little keeper of sheep, why don't you go back home and play with your marbles? You say, why'd you bring Eliab in? Why didn't Jesus' brothers believe on him? Out of pride about admitting that a brother was as great as the Son of God on earth. But boy, when he rose from the dead, I was talking to someone at break time. Wasn't it, isn't it exciting to read in the Bible? James, the Lord's brother. Is that meaningful to you when you read that? Or the brethren of our Lord. They were in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 with Mary. Do you know what kind of a family reunion that was? And you say to yourself, well, I want a family reunion like that in my life. Then you be as faithful as Mary. Be as faithful as Mary and beg God for mercy. For 33 and a half years, she had to see Jesus' brethren and sisters not believe on him. Was there a day when she had a blessed heart? After the resurrection. That's another story for another time. That's a glorious story. Why did Paul and Barnabas have to separate company? In Acts 15, because of nepotism. What is nepotism? When you show favoritism to a relative, it's forbidden in the workplace, and for good reason. When you show favor to a relative, Barnabas wanted to show favor to John Mark, and Paul wouldn't allow it, and it caused a sharp dissension between the two of them. You know, Jesus' friends spoke one to another and said Jesus was beside himself. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, because he was overwhelmed with a crowd that needed to be healed. But it didn't take him long to heal. He didn't have to work his Bilo Center audience up into a frenzy. All he had to say was, stretch forth your hand, take up your bed and walk. And they were healed. But his friends said he was beside himself. How's that for friends? When you're the Lord of glory and you're healing the nation and your friends say you're beside yourself. You're nuts, you're mad, you're crazy, you're insane. You know what Paul had to say to the Galatians when they turned their back on the gospel he had preached to them? Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? You're treating me like an enemy. What happened to the blessedness that we once had? You would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if it would have served me well. You considered me like an angel from heaven. What has happened? Is it because I tell you the truth? That is going to happen, brethren. There will be those that sit among us and sing with us and pray with us and commune with us and smile with us and tell us they love us and tell us they love the Lord and say, let the Lord be glorified while they stick a knife in us. Get ready for it. Get used to it. It has happened. It is happening. And it will happen. I'd rather have 
open rebuke than secret love. Did you campers and retreaters hear that over the past 72 hours? Rebuke me openly. If the righteous smite me, I'll consider it a kindness. But don't hide your hatred behind kisses. Another point. Hatred proportionate to the standard. That's for me. For you. You might think the better you live, the fewer enemies. If I will live a holy and a righteous life, and if I am careful and pleasing God in every way, that even my enemies are going to be at peace with me. Sometimes in some ways. But is that going to take away the sword? No. It brings a bigger sword. Because who lived the best life? Who is the standard by this point in my outline? Who is the standard? The Lord Jesus Christ and will never improve on His standard. And yet look at the sword that chased Him all the way to the cross by crucifixion. Consider David's experience. He was the man after God's own heart. Look at Psalm 38. Psalm 38. You know, we, th- we think, if, if I'm always fair, and I, I, I love that word, fair. I want to be fair. I want to be equal. I want to be just in my dealings with everyone. I don't want to be partial. And so we say, I'm going to deal so fairly and as liberally and as generously and as graciously as I possibly can. Is that going to keep the sword out of your life? No, no, no. It's going to bring it. It is going to bring it because that just grinds them. It grinds them that you are so generous and liberal and gracious and kind and merciful and friendly and they will turn on you and stomp on your face. Watch. Psalm 38. It's another one of those psalms. Psalm 38, 20. They also that render evil for good are mine adversaries because I follow the thing that good is. I follow goodness in my life and that makes them my adversaries. You are not going to be able to live good enough to get rid of the sword. The sword's going to come after you and it's going to be hatred proportionate to you looking like the standard of Jesus Christ. The closer you get to Christ, the more you're going to be persecuted, just like Paul found out. If we look at the New Testament, we would say Paul was the closest to Christ and look at the amount of persecution he endured. Jesus is the standard. He was rejected, despised, and afflicted of men, tortured, and killed. Men hate truth, so more of it brings more enemies. And each one of these is a small sermon. But you're going to have to just hear me say it and trust that the Bible teaches it, and you should know the Bible well enough that I can just speak these words to your ears. Men hate truth, so more of it brings more enemies. Jesus said, ye believe me not, because I tell you the truth. If he was to tell them a lie, he would have had a crowd following him. Men hate righteousness, so more of it brings hate. Who's the example? Abel. His worship was righteous, and so Cain hated him. Did you read in 2 Timothy 3 last night that Christians would be despisers of those that are good? Did you see that? That is not the world. The world's always been that way. These are Christians. Did it also say in there that they would be truce breakers? Did it say in there that they would be fierce? 
Don't you read the Word of God without stopping on every word. Every word of God is pure, and we should live by every word of God. And that passage I gave you to read last night is full of meaning as it describes Christians. Those 19 symptoms at the top of chapter 3 are not describing the world because that isn't something future that was to come about the world. The world's always been that way. That is Christians becoming like that. Men hate success, so it brings envy. Pilate knew why the Jews delivered Jesus. What's the four-letter word? I just said it. Envy. Men hate wisdom, so more of it brings fear, and they mistrust a person that's wise around them that's always going to do what's right. Have you read 1 Samuel 18 and how David tore King Saul up because David went in and out before the people, and whatever he did was the wise and right thing to do? He behaved himself wisely in the sight of all of King's servants and the sight of the whole nation of Israel. And what did Saul do? Did he use that wise man in his kingdom? No, he tried to kill him. He eyed him from that day forward. Men hate favor, so more of it brings hate. The more God blesses a man, the more men hate him. Which of the sons of Jacob was the most blessed? Joseph. They would have murdered him if it hadn't been for Judah. And then he was sold into slavery. Men hate virtue, so more of it brings animosity. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the more virtuous you are, men are going to envy and hate you for it. Ecclesiastes 4.4, the wise preacher said, Again, I considered all travail and every right work. Notice what kind of works. We're talking about a diligent man who does that which is right. That for this, a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. One of the frustrating things that Solomon saw about life is a man who's very diligent and always does the right thing in a diligent, zealous way is despised by his neighbor and envied by his neighbor. So you can see that the more Christian character you have, the more you're going to be hated. Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106, the last character point that I'll mention, and this list could go on indefinitely. Men hate leadership. They hate authority because they're rebellious by nature. So more of it brings conspiracies against them. Look at the conspiracies against David. Who wouldn't you want as king? He goes out and defeats all your enemies. And he does it with so much of God's blessing, all your sons get to come home safe. And on and on we could go. The nation was so rich and prospered so much under every man's fig tree in the reign of David. Psalm 106, verse 16. They envied Moses also in the camp and Aaron, the the saint of the Lord. Verse 17. The earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. There's three verses describing the conspiracy against authority. So the more that you take a leadership role, the more you want to stand up and man up for the Lord Jesus Christ, the more truth, righteousness, success, wisdom, favor, and virtue you have, the more the sword is going to come into your life because you're going to be closer to the standard and they're going to come after you because they hate the standard. After Jesus, who stands next? 
what they do to the standard? They falsely accused him, even though they could get no two witnesses to have a story that agreed. They tortured him, and they crucified him naked, mocking him as the king of the Jews. Who's next in greatness in the earth, according to Jesus? John Baptist. What'd they do to John the Baptist? They cut his head off, and before he got to die, they said he had a devil. Who's next? Paul. How was he loved, even by the Corinthians? Who's next? David. How was he loved? By Saul. By Doeg the Edomite. By Absalom. By Ahithophel. By Adonijah. He's on his deathbed. The hose is at his nose. And Adonijah is stealing the kingdom. He brings Absalom back through Joab's efforts from being banished from the kingdom for killing his brother. But when Absalom comes back into the kingdom, he stands at the entranceway to Jerusalem and steals the hearts of all the men of Israel. Do you know the Bible stories? This is the man after God's own heart. After David, who stands next? Moses. Time would fail to tell of Joseph, Elijah, Jeremiah, the prophets, and the apostles. The world wasn't worthy of these heroes. And the point that I'm trying to make is, you are not going to get rid of the sword out of your life by living virtuously. The closer you live to Christ, the greater the sword, because you're more like Him, and He is going to try you to make you even more like Him. And to be more like Him, you've got to be persecuted like Jesus was. Hatred proportionate to the love shown. You say, I'm going to get rid of the sword by loving those in my life. I've already answered this very quickly earlier today. Are you going to outlove the Lord Jesus Christ? And are you going to outlove the Apostle Paul? You might think, and it's intuitive to all of us, including me, it's intuitive that if I'm always kind and always gracious and I love, I love everyone, Surely they can never turn to be my enemy. Paul said about the Corinthian church, the more I love you, the more you love me, and we live happily ever after. Second no. Corinthians twelve fifteen. the more I love you, the less I be loved. Amen. But I will spend and be spent for you. Did the fact that they didn't love him and their hearts weren't enlarged toward him discourage him from enlarging his heart toward them? He just kept right on doing it to that church at Corinth. But what a lesson that he gives us. Who was their father in the gospel? Paul was. He said, I have begun. Though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, though you've got 10,000 in your ministerial association in Corinth that don't like me, remember one thing. I begot you through the gospel. I planted and Apollos watered. I was the wise master builder. I laid the foundation. Let every other man take heed how he lays upon the foundation I laid. Look at who Paul was to the Corinthians, but he had to spend half of the two epistles defending himself against them. How could a man love that church more than he did? Look at Psalm 109. You're only a couple pages away. Psalm 109. Oh, we think... We think There's so much love between us. I love them. 
How can they turn and do that? It doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean a thing. Psalm 109, verse 1, Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise. For the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries. But I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Did David love Absalom? Did David love Adonijah? Did he love him so much that he wasn't a very good father? Yes, he didn't question his son enough. Did he love Ahithophel? So it's David, but I want to tell you a secret. By reading ahead, we know the context of this psalm. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, and he's talking about Judas Iscariot. Because he says in the next verse, Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right day. Verse 8, at his right hand. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Are you familiar with those words from Acts chapter 1, and the meeting of the apostles approaching the day of Pentecost? This is about Jesus and Judas, and it's about David and those that he loved. Notice, love does not get rid of the sword. Here's, here's why I'm making these points. If the Lord and others and your conscience has not very plainly and thoroughly shown you that you did something wrong in the relationship, then do not beat yourself. Because no matter how righteous you are, you're never going to be more righteous than Jesus Christ. And He did not get rid of the sword. Don't blame yourself by saying, I didn't love them enough, if you know that you love them. Because you will never outlove the Lord Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul, and yet they were hated. Okay? It's to comfort your hearts. It has happened, it is happening, it will happen. Jehoiada should have had a family tree that would prosper forever, don't you think? I know some of you may be saying, who is Jehoiada? Jehoiada took a little, took a little baby boy named Joash and hid him in the temple where that wicked Athaliah could not kill him and protected him until he was a seven-year-old boy. And then he got the secret service of Israel together and they gathered in the temple and they brought forth that little seven-year-old boy and they put a crown on his head. And when Athaliah came in screaming, Treason, treason, get her out of here and kill her. So that was Jehoiada who protected a little... No designs on the kingdom except to keep the rightful heir to the throne protected and to give him his job as king. Do you remember all that story? I preached it to you. It's touching. It's very touching. Jehoiada died a very old man. It's one of the exceptional facts in the Bible. Jehoiada died a very old man. His son Zechariah saw the nation falling away to idolatry after his father Jehoiada was dead. And God convicted him one day in the midst of a public assembly. And he jumped up and he said, it says he was above the people. 
He warned the people, the Lord's now against you because you've turned your back on the Lord. He's against you. And Joash from his throne said, kill him. Un, where does that spirit come from? Where does that spirit come from that Joash would kill the son of the man who saved his life and protected his kingdom and put the crown on his head and made the whole nation loyal to him as a seven-year-old boy? Where does that hatred come from? The hatred against truth and righteousness. It's the hatred that was in Cain. It's from the devil himself. Those were the people of God. That was the church of the Old Testament. God addressed Israel in Isaiah 5 by saying, What more could have been done to my vineyard? What more could he have done? He did everything possible to favor and love Israel. And yet when I looked for grapes... It brought forth wild grapes. Do we get the taste of wild grapes in our mouths from time to time? Even though we've loved. Do you know that there, there are people that have left our church that knew when they were here they had never had such a friendly and loving church as this church and I can promise you that they will never have one after they leave us. But it doesn't matter. Because there is a hatred bound in their hearts that's motivated by pride, self-righteousness, and other factors that lead them just like the examples that the Bible gives us from one cover to the other in our Bibles. The hatred of the wicked against the righteous will easily overlook and ignore anything or everything done for them. Think of ungrateful children rebelling. You know, you take a cell phone away from a child and they blow away 18 years of you loving and diapering them and feeding them and clothing them and sheltering them and transporting them, they'll blow it all away for a stinking little toy? How does that happen? Because that is how desperately wicked each one of us is by nature. And when that wicked nature is not ruled or it's not regenerated and it is in the presence of righteousness and truth and wisdom, it hates It would hate the Lord Jesus Christ, and it did. It would hate the Apostle Paul, and it did. Or David, or Moses, or Jeremiah, or you. Are you ready? Are you ready to count up the cost? Enemies love company. You know the Bible teaches that, don't you? Pilate and Herod resented each other because they were competitors in Judea and Jerusalem. Who had the most authority? Was it the Edomite-appointed king, Herod the... Herod uh, Antipas, the first? Or was it Pilate, the governor? So they were enemies. But when did they become friends? When they got to unite their punishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says they became friends. And so you will find out that those that leave us band together because they have something in common that's greater than the gospel they had in common with us. It's their hatred of us. It is throughout the Bible... It's amazing how the Jews went and solicited Pilate to crucify Jesus. How much of the Jews love their Roman oppressors? But there they are working together. The kings of the earth take counsel together, and the rulers against his anointed, Psalm 2. And they prayed it, the apostles prayed it in the book of Acts, because they saw it fulfilled. The Old Testament is full of confederacies against Israel. Those, those nations would come together in confederacies, though they hated each other, and though at other times they fought each other, 
Oh no, if they could join hands together to destroy the people of Jehovah, they would do it. What in the world would cause nations to give their kingdoms to the Pope? This is a historical fact referred to in Revelation 17, the last five verses. It says, you know, it says they give their kingdoms to the beast. Why would a king give up his sovereignty? out of animosity toward the people of God, and to give the popes of Rome a secular arm to persecute Christians. And how does it all come about? Because God has put in their hearts to fulfill His will, to give their kingdoms to the beast, until the word of God shall be fulfilled. It is not ordinary for kings to want to give their authority and their sovereignty to fairy old men that wear white pajamas. It is not ordinary. It is not normal. It is not heterosexual. It is just perverse. It is twisted. It is effeminate. But they do it. They did it. Why? Because they all united and they wore out the saints of the Most High God for 1260 years. Brethren, it can get worse than you think. Because the human heart is more deceitful and perverse than anything you know, family or friends can and will do things against you you might think impossible. When you read the atrocities against the martyrs, sometimes it's hard to believe. I have recently read a testimony which you will never hear, especially you ladies. It is unbelievable to read. And I have read them in books and I have brought some of those books to you, but I'm talking about present day cases. Why did the Jews try to kill Jesus for healing a man's withered hand? Jesus said, reach forth your hand. And his withered hand became whole. Do you know what the next verse says? And they took counsel together to kill him. Wait a minute. What did I miss in there? Is there a page in the Bible missing? That afterwards he had an hour-long appeal for money. And he passed KFC buckets to get them to put money in the plate or the bucket. Is there something that I missed? No, you didn't miss a thing. And it's what I'm preaching to you today, the sword of Christ. If you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to hate you. How could you hate a man that healed a man's withered hand? You know, a man's gone around like this his whole life. And all of a sudden, Jesus says to him, stretch forth thine hand. Wow, Lord, thank you. And they want to kill him. Why? Because they couldn't do the miracles. And all men were going to follow him and leave the Pharisees' religion if they didn't do something about it. Oh, Lord God, save us from jealousy and envy of that sort. That is so terrible. Paul had such beautiful feet, and look what Corinth did to him. Implacability is their specialty. Implacability is a sin in the Bible. It means you can't please them, no matter what you do. The southern expression is, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. You can't make them happy. You can't please them. Is this in the Bible? How about Luke chapter 7, verses 31 through 35? Let me tell it to you. God said, you're like children in the marketplace. We pipe and you won't dance. It doesn't matter what tune we play, you won't dance. We send John the Baptist. He neither eats bread nor drinks wine. He's got a devil. The Lord Jesus Christ comes along. He eats bread and drinks wine. He's a wine-bibber and a glutton. But wisdom is justified of her children. And do you know where wisdom is justified today that we know of for sure? Right here. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. He's the Son of God. He's the only Savior. He's my King. He's my Shepherd. He's my Priest. He's my Apostle. He's the, 
He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. And I love the fact that he ate bread and drank wine for all those that don't like pizza and wine together. And I love John the Baptist because he was a wild man that didn't care about shopping at the men's warehouse and having a pulpit manor. I love them both, don't you? Wisdom is justified of her children. We love them both because between the two of them, we all get to walk. Because none of you are in leathern girdles this morning. Implacable. You can't please them. How about Lystra? David, thank you. Acts chapter 14. David Taylor was reading earlier this week and he couldn't believe. Acts chapter 14. The apostle Paul heals a man. They fall down and worship him. Oh, the gods have come down to us. And they're trying to offer sacrifices to Paul. Paul says, Paul runs in among them. Brethren, we're preaching against that kind of superstition. There's a real God. We're just men. Some Jews came in from the previous city they'd been in and told them that they were bad guys. And within the hour, they're stoned to death. How does that happen? Isn't a man who refuses to accept worship and sacrifice and tells you, I am just like you. We're all together of one kind. Don't worship me. There's a God in heaven who's left himself a wit, a constant witness by the goodness that he sends in the rain. I can't send rain. Wouldn't you think that a humble man like that would be a great friend? They stone him. In an hour. David suggested an hour. I thought 15 minutes. There wasn't much that transpired between... How does that happen? They'll accuse you of not discussing things with them, but refuse to meet with you. They'll accuse you of not discussing with them, because you already have, by giving them the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. They want you to hear their opinions. The acid test is not whether somebody is of your DNA or is less than your DNA. Your DNA is family, less than your DNA is friends, and so I'm saying both family and friends are not the acid test. Who really cares about DNA? And I don't want to lose anyone that has my DNA or married my DNA. And I don't want to lose anyone in this church without my DNA because I love every one of you in the Lord Jesus Christ and desire your perfection before God and our unity and peace until Jesus Christ comes. However, if there's a choice to be made between Christ and anyone, it's Christ. If it's the gospel in anyone, it's the gospel. If it's the gospel as we've been taught it, until there's a tsunami of evidence, it's the gospel the way I've been taught it. That's the acid test. The only relationships that count are those based on Scripture and continuing on Scripture. For anything else is absolutely and totally vain. David said, I am a companion of all them that fear thee and keep thy commandments. That is a good rule for family. And you know, if you lose blood family that's got your DNA, the Lord will replace it with better family that has spiritual DNA. Because they're partakers, second time, what was I going to say? Partakers of the divine nature. Yes. Isn't that a wonderful description of us? Yeah, that's a whole lot better than family, isn't it? What'd you give somebody by getting under the sheets with your spouse? Huh? Are you kidding me? What you gave them is a mess. And it's getting uglier every day. You say you're not being very kind. I'm not trying to be. I'm being kind to the God of heaven. 
Boy, has he done something. He has adopted us. Brother Jeff, we often trade emails saying that we're adopted brothers. Because we are. Special adoption. It's crazy. It's hard to believe. Oh, they're going to do many terrible things and there's no time for that. The godly explanation is that God has appointed this our portion in life. Did you hear Charlie's words this morning, Philippians chapter 1? It is given to you to suffer on his behalf. It's given to you. Listen, he's chosen us before the world began. He's given us eternal life. He's regenerated us. He's given us the word of God. He's given us the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He's given us brethren of like precious faith. If he gives us a little bit of trouble on the side to make us better, is that okay? Oh, it's okay. It is a token. What's it a token to us of? Salvation. And it's a token to those that persecute us of perdition. What is perdition? Judgment and destruction. Just like the man of sin is called the son of perdition because he's going to be destroyed by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we identify with Jesus unless we have some persecution like Jesus had? Jesus would reason if they hated him, aren't they going to hate you too? Unless you're better than your master, I'm nowhere near my master. So it's going to be worse for me than it was for him. But you know what? He's so gracious and kind, it really hasn't been worse. Has it? Does anybody think they've suffered worse than Jesus Christ suffered? No. The Bible tells us contention only cometh by what character fault? What weakness? What sin? Pride. Only by pride cometh contention. When there's fighting and strife, you should always look first. Where's the pride? And for those of you with discerning eyes, it's pretty obvious to see it most times. Envy. Envy. Wrath is cruel and anger is heavy or something to that effect. Forgive me. But who can stand before envy? It's jealousy. It's resentment. It's envy. It's a horrible thing. It just eats it, man. Look what it did to the brothers of Joseph. Look what it did to the Jews. They couldn't handle the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he was serving their nation like no other. They had him crucified. Self-righteousness is one of the worst sins. For the Bible says that a man that thinketh that he's right is worse than a fool. Self-righteousness can't even get convicted, can't even hear you correcting them because they're so confident in their own righteousness that they couldn't be wrong. Goody-goody little two-shoes love to be self-righteous. And we've got to hate that. The only righteousness that matters to any of us should be the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that He had to drape over our ugly, stinking, do you want me to tell you what the words mean? Menstrual cloth righteousness of yourself. It stinks. It's gross and despicable. So the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have any. And one of the safest ways is to not be one of these enemies of the truth and of the truth's people and the Lord's people is to get rid of all self-righteousness. Bitterness is the hateful result of past offenses not dealt with scripturally and a root can spring up and trouble many people. Bitterness over the littlest things because you didn't resolve it scripturally. Everything should be resolved scripturally. Little differences are going to come up among us. Let's just resolve them. Oh, the Bible tells us that there's a constant animosity and hatred between the righteous and the wicked. It's been from the beginning. It's good against evil. It's the, it's the Lord against the devil. And it affects the human race. There's a war being fought out of our sight, and there's a war being fought in our sight. 
And the book of Proverbs describes it as the wicked hate the righteous, and guess what? And it's okay. The righteous hate the wicked. Because there's enmity between the two of us. What's our response? Celebrate. You say, that's crazy. Matthew chapter 5. Look at Matthew 5. Help me. Help me finish this. Matthew chapter 5. What's called the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Blessed are they that mourn, verse 4. All these blessings the Lord Jesus Christ is pouring out upon the righteous who live a righteous life. But if you live a righteous life, what have we learned today? A sword's coming. You're going to be persecuted. So what does, how does he end up? The Beatitudes, verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Don't you tell us about you being persecuted for your faults. None of us are perfect. But it's easy to ask for forgiveness for our faults and get over our faults and not have them constantly in front of our accusers. The issue here is righteousness' sake, not foolishness' sake. There's no blessedness because you're despised for your foolishness, past or present. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a token of salvation. Verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, say all sorts of nasty things against you, and persecute you and call you names, and punish you and torture you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, falsely accusing you and slandering you of the of things that you never did for my sake. If they do it for my sake, look at verse 10, it's for righteousness sake. In verse 11, it's for Christ's sake that they go to these lengths to put you in a bad light and to hate you. Verse 12, here's our response. Rejoice! Rejoice! Celebrate! Be happy! Rejoice! And be exceeding glad! Not just a little glad, but exceeding glad! For great is your reward in heaven! There is a great reward coming because I will make up for everything they've done to you falsely. I will make up for it truly with your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You are in good company on earth and you're going to be in good company in heaven because I'm going to reward you like I have the prophets. What a wonderful passage. That tells us our response. Did the apostles know how to put that into practice? Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. The first time they were beaten and these were the timid apostles like Peter who was afraid of a little maid a few days earlier, they came out of the council of the Jews rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer shame and that beating for the cause of Christ. It's Acts 5 and verse 41. In Acts chapter 16, the magistrates rent off their clothes. This is Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 rent off their clothes and laid many stripes upon them and thrust them into the inner prison and told the jailer to keep them safe. And at midnight... They prayed and sang praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. Acts 16.25. Wonderful story. The apostles believed this. Do you believe this? The sword's coming. Can't stop it. Won't stop it. Shouldn't stop it. Can't stop it. I know I repeated myself. It's coming. Let's rejoice and be exceeding glad. It came against the Lord Jesus Christ. It came against all our heroes of the faith. Let's be as faithful as those heroes of the faith. Because it did not move them. They continued faithful to the Lord. Can't be surprised or offended when it comes because He told us about it. Look at John 16. 
John chapter 16. Jesus told us. People want to hear about prophecy. They want to hear about prophecy. They want want some PowerPoint presentation or a moving picture like Left Behind where they can see an antichrist with a glowing 666 in his forehead using tanks and stuff and, you know, this fake rapture where all of a sudden the bus driver's gone, the bus careens off the cliff and on and on. They want prophecy. They want prophecy. Oh, tell me, who are the 144,000 in Revelation? Who are the two witnesses? Tell me prophecy. I'll give you prophecy. Think not that I am come to bring peace, but a sword. And all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why doesn't that prophecy get them excited? Why do they want to speculate about their Star Wars finale to the earth's existence? Because they know not God, nor Jesus Christ, nor the gospel, nor righteousness, nor wisdom, nor truth. They are bankrupt. And if you don't think the Bible doesn't say that, they are men destitute of the truth and of corrupt minds, and they know nothing at all. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, through 5, and we are supposed to withdraw ourselves from them. John 16, these things, verse 1, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Jesus said it. Even though they're going to be God's people. But notice why he told them, so that you won't be offended when it happens. I hope no one in here is offended. I hope you all enjoyed having our mirth feast last Sunday night with the timing that it was. Thank you, brother. I hope that it didn't offend you to have a mirth feast when we had it. It was perfectly appropriate. If we're going to believe the whole Bible. You know what tells us about the Hebrew Christians? Oh, those Hebrews in Judea that converted to Jesus Christ were punished by the Jews. And Paul wrote about them in Hebrews chapter 10 and he said, when you were first converted, when you were first illuminated and you saw the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you were reproached for it, you joyfully took the spoiling of your goods because you knew that you had in heaven an enduring substance. Can you imagine being chained up naked by your enemies as your house burns to the ground? All of your assets in there and your house is being burned to the ground. How does how did Paul say that they took that? In Hebrews 10, I'm trying to see if you were listening. Joyfully, the spoiling of your goods. How could they take that joyfully to see everything they had on earth burned up? Because they knew in heaven they had something that can't be burned up, an enduring substance. Is that how we look at all of our lives? And you know, no one's come and burned our houses down yet. It it could happen. They have plenty of hatred for it. But so far, that hasn't happened. But we ought to look at the example. You know, what's our godly response? It's to pray the way we do in this church for God to rid us of strange children. David did that, and we should do that. We should understand the rest of the Psalms that I've referred to today, especially 38 and 55, among others. To be like the best, we want to pray for God's blessings and everything they do against us personally. Against the gospel and against God and against His church and against His truth and against His word, that's a different thing. But everything that's done against us personally, we want to be like Jesus and we want to be like Stephen. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. But did Jesus also say, How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? But he gave us an example while he was dying. He gave us an example of how to love his mother and honor her. And he gave us an example of how to forgive our personal enemies and the martyrs that came behind them that you can read about forgiving those that were burning them to death about that particular transaction. But do you know what they're singing in heaven and begging in heaven? Lord, revenge our blood. Do you understand? You understand how those two fit together. I'm not going to preach on it right now, but I hope you can, and I hope you do, and I hope that we all will. Why does the Lord take so long? Well, we're just going to keep running accounting that the long-suffering of God is salvation. While you're thinking to yourself, why doesn't he judge our enemies? I'm thinking for us. I'm glad he hasn't judged anyone yet, because that means he's given us more time to perfect our lives more in his cause. Has God forgotten? Never. Don't blame yourself, brethren. Paul told Timothy that even when you're a perfect minister, Timothy, only if God peradventure will grant repentance to the truth, to the acknowledging of the truth, will they be able to recover themselves out of the sneer of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Even if you're perfect, it still is up to God to grant that repentance. And so that's where we have to leave it. Do you understand this rule of engagement in following Jesus Christ? Will you remember it always? Have you with me this day counted up the cost and you're willing to pay it as we have in the past? We must ask and answer a real question. Am I persecuted? And if I'm not, why not? Lord, help me live godly in Christ Jesus. I'm all yours for time and eternity. Amen.